Welcome to the Creative Careers in Medicine podcast with your host, Dr. Dana Pung, and myself, Dr. Elise Hutt. Join us as we talk to inspiring clinicians who have redefined their careers. Today, I welcome to the show Dr. Sarah Dalton. Sarah is a pediatric emergency physician who has built herself a creative career serving in leadership roles and coaching alongside her clinical work. Sarah completed a Fulbright scholarship in clinical leadership, and she has held executive leadership roles in several health entities, including the Agency for Clinical Innovation and as president of the Pediatric and Child Health Division of the Royal Australasian College of Physicians. She talks to us about how she's found herself with so many incredible career opportunities, as well as talking us through a coaching exercise that you can do at home to help improve your own skills as a leader. Hi, Dr. Sarah Dalton. Welcome to the Creative Careers in Medicine podcast. Hi, Elise. Nice to meet you. So I want to get a bit of an idea to start with all the sort of roles that you're currently doing. What's a current week in your working life look like? That's a really good question, Elise. And in actual fact, I've just made a very significant change to my working life. But up until that change, I'll tell you what it was. Three days a week working in a digital health leadership role, two days a week working in a coaching role, and one day a week working in an emergency department. So as you probably picked up, that's six days a week. (laughs) And so the change recently is that I've just resigned from my clinical job. And now I'm doing my digital health leadership and the coaching and consulting work that I do in my other time. Wow, that's a huge decision. I bet that must have been a big thing that you thought through quite heavily. What contributed to that? Oh, gosh, it's a really, really long story, which I guess is probably a familiar one for many people listening to the podcast. I have finished and worked as a consultant in paediatric emergency medicine for nearly 20 years. And so I'm fortunate in many ways that I've had the opportunity to do such a long amount of time in that space. But over that time, it opened so many doors. And my ongoing joke is that I just have a short attention span and I get excited by new things and I keep saying yes and walking through doors. And all of a sudden, I ended up with so many things that I really wanted to do They've been extremely well supported by the hospital I worked in to reduce the hours I do clinically to do other things, the other leadership jobs that I do. And I've been very fortunate to enjoy all of it. But I think it just got to the point where I realised that six days a week wasn't sustainable and had to stop and think about what were the most important things to me and what do I really love to do. And probably more, what can I see myself doing for the next five or 10 years So it's actually, even though I'm very old, a very important transition point for me about how I move forward in my career and use all the clinical skills that I developed along the way in these other roles that I now have. It sounds like prior to now, when you've been doing three different things, you had a very clear division of like, this day I'm working this role, this day I'm working another role. Is that fair or did you mix and match and do a little bit of everything every day? Yeah, I think it's a little bit of everything every day. I I have to say that I try very hard to have boundaries. Um, I think for me, out of office is my friend. I try really hard when I'm in a role to be available to respond and to be fully committed in that role. And then when I'm not in the role, I'm committed to the other role, whatever that means. It's really hard though, because there's nothing that any of us do that is only eight hours a day, a week or whatever it is. So you have to do a little bit and triage and prioritize what's important. But I think that inevitably you have to have a bit of an eye on everything. It's a bit like running an emergency department. You've got to know where all the different things are, that situational awareness, but focus one at a time on the important things. And that's how I try to think about the way I juggle the different portfolios. Mm. I think 
most junior doctors or medical students would expect that by the consultant level, they're doing much less than six days a week. I think most people are thinking that's junior years, that's the hard slog, and then you get to the top and you're not working quite so much. But it doesn't sound like that's been the case for you. Definitely not the case for me, and I would guess not the case for a lot of people. If you're working full-time clinically, some people do that seven days a week or even if they're just in the hospital five days a week, they're on call two days a week. I know that that might be a model that's less common, but that definitely happens. And then so many people have, you know, we talk about portfolio careers, but I wonder what the definition of that really is. Like we have so many people who work clinically and have extra interests or extracurricular activities within medicine still, whether it's education or research or digital or quality or whatever it is. So you have a whole spectrum of portfolios no matter where you work and being able to switch on and off to each of them is always a challenge. Mm -hmm. Something I'm still learning, I think, a bit. But I'm interested in what actually drew you into medicine and then paediatrics in the first place. I love to tell this story, so I'll try not to go on for too long. (laughs) But I never knew what I wanted to do at school. I went to a public school in Canberra and I was doing reasonably well, but I wasn't at the very top of the class. And my mum wanted to be a doctor and decided not to because she didn't like the sight of blood and became a health educator. And she said to me, you really should think about medicine. And I remember saying, oh, mum, I'm not that good because I really wouldn't have got into a traditional medical school. What I really loved when I was in year 12 was drama and being in musicals. And so what I really wanted to do was go to NIDA. Like seriously, that was what I wanted to do. Uh, The joke, which is not probably true, is that it was harder to get into NIDA than it was to get into medical school. (laughs) Um, But interestingly, what happened was that my mum was waiting to pick me up from a drama rehearsal one night and went in, told me there was a careers night where I could go and talk to the careers advisor about what to do. And I said, I didn't possibly have time for that because I was doing the musical rehearsal. So she went and talked to the careers advisor. And she told me afterwards that Newcastle Medical School, if you did an interview, you had a chance of getting in if you had a score in the top 10%. You didn't have to be in the top 1%. And so the other thing that happened was I had a really good friend who was just like me in that she loved drama, but her second favourite subject, just like me, was physics, which is weird, right? (laughs) I've always been weird. But the fact that she was like me is so important, but she was thinking about doing medicine. And so then she said, why don't we go and see if we can get into Newcastle Medical School? And we both got interviews and then we had this great fun weekend where we got to drive up and do the interviews. And so it literally was just seemed like a good idea at the time. And on reflection at my interview, I said that I was interested in psychology. I was interested in working with children. Maybe that would mean I would do pediatric psychiatry. Clearly, I didn't do that. But I look back now and I can see those strands and how they have probably impacted and influenced the choices that I've made. And then as the story ends, I did get into medicine. And now I'm very glad that I did. I've been able to have so many interesting opportunities and used some skills in lots of different ways over the years. But it was a bit of a happenstance than an actual plan, I would say. Mm. Did you follow through on any of that drama actor <laughs> skills or did you let yep. that go when you got into med? Well, I look, that's probably why I did paediatrics, if I'm, in, if I'm completely honest. I think you get to muck around with kids and you pull faces and you play jokes and you blow bubbles and I think that's partly why I did paediatrics. Insofar as did I actually continue as an amateur drama enthusiast, uh, no, I didn't. But I did set up drama games or theatre sports when I was at university. And the really funny part of this story is I worked overseas for a little while in the UK 
and I was in Bristol and I was walking around at night. I can't remember. I think I just arrived and I didn't know anyone. And I walked past this lovely girl that I went to university with, sorry, I went to high school with, and we had gone together to see if we could get into med school. And we got into different med schools and we actually had lost touch over a couple of years. But we ran into each other literally in the middle of the night on the side of the road in Bristol and ended up catching up. And the really strange thing is that she had set up theatre sports in her university as well. (laughs) And so obviously, sometimes you think you're a real weirdo and no one in the whole world could be like you. But every now and then you find your tribe, which is clearly what this is all about. And that's a really nice thing. Oh, that's beautiful. How did it actually go from that initial interest in your interview into actually ending up in paediatrics? Good question. Um, I've often said about myself that I'm an optimistic problem solver with an overdeveloped sense of responsibility. And what that means, I think, is that I'm always looking for opportunities and can't help but see ways that I'd like to be involved and potentially try to help be part of a solution. And also, I think now as an emergency doctor, I can reflect on the fact that I've got very broad interests. Don't always go very deep in each of them. (laughs) As I said before, I like to be interested by lots of different things. And so, when I was at medical school, I liked everything. I wanted to do everything. I ended up having a rural scholarship to go and work in a rural area for a couple of years. And I went to Tamworth and I loved it. I really loved my first few years as a junior doctor. And I got to do all sorts of different things, including paediatrics. But my scholarship was actually to be a rural GP and I needed to do some paediatric skills for that. So I came back to Sydney to do a diploma of paediatrics so I could be a better GP. And then I just got stuck, partly because I was in Sydney and I was having a great time, but also I was enjoying where I was working and I was learning about paediatric emergency medicine, which was that big picture, get to do a little bit of everything type stuff and very much that short-term action-focused problem-solving work that I really enjoy. And so that ended up being the pathway that I took. Mm. So did you do paediatrics as your basic training and then the emergency subspecialty on top of that? That's right. So RACP and then my final years of advanced training had an acute care focus. I didn't complete emergency medicine training through the Emergency Medicine College. There are some people who have done dual training, but I just did the advanced training through RACP, which included doing a year of adult emergency medicine and quite a lot of paediatric care. How did you find that doing adults after having worked with kids for so long? It was really interesting, actually. I I remember having to take a chest pain history and having no memory of how to do that. (laughs) That's one thing you walk out of medical school with, it's knowing how to ask a chest pain history. And then I'd been doing paediatrics for, I must have been five or six years before I went and did my adult year of acute care and I couldn't remember how to ask those basic questions and I kept asking people about their immunizations which is obviously important but I'd forget to ask them about their smoking status because it just wasn't something I was familiar with doing. How did you actually end up working in the UK as well? Was that part of your peds training or was that after you were done? I went twice and both times it was part of my PEDS training. I think I was in some ways enabled to do that because I have a UK passport. I was born in London but came to Australia when I was only a couple of years old and I wanted to go back and travel and spend time with the family. When I was working in Tamworth, there was a paediatrician who had a um, secondment arrangement with the Taunton Hospital, which is a small place near Bristol, and we arranged basically an informal secondment for doing some paediatric time there as a junior resident, junior registrar. But then again, when I'd almost finished my paediatric emergency training, I had an opportunity to go and do a clinical fellowship at the Sick Kids in Edinburgh. 
And that was a great opportunity to be in Scotland, something slightly different, and obviously work on the other side of the world, which I think is an amazing opportunity, obviously, for personal reasons and for travel, but just to see a different health system, to see the way people work in different places and to expand your knowledge, I think is always really helpful. Yeah, it sounds incredible. How did digital health start to come onto the scene? At what point in your career did that start to become an interest? I think I'm a laggard when it comes to digital health. I know I said I have a clinical leadership role in digital health and I do, but I'd emphasize the clinical. <laughs> My job is very much about being an ambassador, someone who can translate the language and I guess someone who understands about clinical leadership, clinical engagement. I've got a long history of working in executive and other leadership roles in New South Wales Health where you understand the players and the system how it works or doesn't work depending on the day and how it all fits together and that kind of knowledge of the environment and context I think is really important when you're looking at system level change. So I had worked in quality and safety and in clinical networks and I then became interested in what is a really big next step and future focus for how we can continue to enable basically clinicians to do their best work. When I think back through the themes of my career that for some reason have always stuck with me, I think I've always just taken opportunities where I can see ways to pretty much try to help clinicians do do their work better. And obviously the opportunities in digital health and the way that it can enable more effective and more efficient healthcare, I think are really important. It's also really nice to go and do something different. As I said, as an emergency doctor, short attention span. So uh, looking for a new job, something new on the horizon. But I just see now that it's a, such a critical part of our healthcare future that I'm really delighted to have the opportunity to learn more. Mm. How did you first end up in those sort of leadership positions? I was lucky. The other thing I say about myself is that I'm a bit of a Stephen Bradbury and I realised that a lot of people probably don't know who he is, but he was in the Australian Olympic team as an ice skater for the Winter Olympics quite a few years ago. And basically he got a gold medal because everybody else fell over and he was the only person standing. <laughs> and for a long time it became a bit of a vernacular that you would be the Stephen Bradbury of something. And it's, it's terrible to say that. I'm sure he's a highly accomplished person and perhaps I should use that to reflect on the fact that maybe I do have some skills behind all this. But when I was looking at the end of my paediatric emergency training to get a consultant job, I started doing a Master's of Quality Improvement. That was in about 2003 and people hadn't really heard about quality improvement. Doctors certainly didn't know much about it. And it was a really unusual thing for someone to be interested in. There goes that theme again of being just a little bit different. Anyway, I was doing it and really enjoyed it. And, and I did that because I really like action-based things and I wasn't very good at research and I'm not very good at detail or focus for that matter. <laughs> no, that's not entirely true. Anyway, I did get involved in the quality and safety space pretty early and then in New South Wales, they were looking for people who had expertise in quality and safety and paediatrics to get involved in some of the systems leadership roles. And there just actually wasn't anybody else around who had that same level of experience. Or no, I had no experience. The same level of training, I suppose. And also in a position where I was um, able to be flexible and move into a role and actually start working in it. Because the people who didn't do a lot of quality and safety roles were already working, you know, in quite significant quality and safety roles in the health system. So I had a phone call where they said, we're looking for someone and there's not many people around. I understand you know a little bit about this. Would you be interested? So I said yes and walked through that door. <laughs> and then after that, did the opportunities kind of roll in having started in that sort of role or did you seek out other leadership roles? 
I think one thing led to another. Being in that gave me an amazing opportunity to learn. First of all, I just learned so much. I had a lot to learn. And I was really well supported by fantastic mentors who were able to take the time to support me and teach me and, you know, pick me up when I fell and all those things. And I found out more about the system and probably learned more about myself and what I was interested in and what I was good at. And so through that, I started to develop interest in things like clinical leadership, which I probably would never have thought of as a specialty or an area if I was working clinically. And I met enough people to have an opportunity to think about things like applying for a Fulbright scholarship, which I did, and then was successful to do that in clinical leadership and was lucky enough to have networks of people who would then say, you should go and meet my friend who's the expert in this, or you should go. And I got to meet some really outstanding global leaders in quality and safety and clinical leadership through that opportunity. And again, these opportunities, I did seek some of them out, but a lot of them really just came around and I enjoyed it. And I guess being one of those people who says yes to everything, like (laughs) many of us are, found myself in a place where not many people really wanted to go. Like there were not many people who did paediatrics who wanted to do acute care and there weren't many people in acute care who wanted to do paediatrics. And between the two of them, almost nobody either knew much or wanted to do much around quality and safety. So I ended up with um, the ongoing joke is that I'm a bit of a platypus. I have these levels of interest and experiences that all fit together in me, but they're not an easily recognisable thing for somebody (laughs) else. And so I ended up with, I guess... For people who are listening, if you're thinking about how you build your skill set, it was a unique mix of things that even though there might not have been many roles that suited me, there were not many other people who had that skill set. And so being able to follow what I was interested in became then things that I was good at, became things that were then the kind of, I guess, the offer that I had. And even though there might not be many people looking for people like me, when they did, I didn't have a lot of competition. Mm, that's incredibly valuable advice, I think, because medicine definitely streamlines you and creates a hundred of the same sort of doctor in the same sort of specialty with the way that you jump on that one little conveyor belt and follow it the whole way through and no one really thinks to branch off. So that's good advice to encourage people to branch off from everything that they're being told they need to do. You've probably heard of the unique value proposition What is it that you bring that is valuable and different to everybody else? And that doesn't mean that you need to put a big stamp on your head and say, I'm unique and I'm valuable. But particularly if you've got a bit of a diverse and slightly unusual set of interests, that can be an enormous strength rather than making you necessarily feel like you're always on the outer. And then the third prong to what you're currently doing is the coaching. And how did you actually get into coaching? How long have you been coaching for? I've been coaching with coaching qualifications now for almost five years and how I got into it was a bit like the other stories. This opportunity came along and I said yes and I really enjoyed it and then I did more and then something unexpected happened. So in my early roles, in my system leadership roles, I was extremely fortunate to be offered coaching as part of a succession management plan and I really enjoyed it. I got a lot out of it. It was the first time I'd really stopped to think and reflect and set my own goals and plan about how I wanted to work going forward. And I then was also, because of the role that I had, ended up running the leadership development program in the organisation I was in. And that made me learn more about coaching because we were providing coaching for other leaders that were having opportunities to do leadership development. 
And through that, I realised that coaching skills, I think, are really key leadership skills. I think the way that you lead a team, people do it differently with their own styles, but ultimately I really believe in supporting the team and enabling the team to do their best work because they are the people who have the expertise and actually understand the problem. And as long as we all agree on the direction that we're going and you provide the right environment, then I think that is how you provide a really good environment as a leader. So I wanted to learn how to be a better leader and I'd done a number of leadership development courses, but I hadn't done a coaching skills development course. So I did a 12-month program at INSEAD in Europe as a coaching certificate and I came back with my coaching skills and the person who had been my coach all those years before said to me, what are you going to do with your coaching skills? And I said, just use them to be a better leader. And she said, okay, would you consider actually offering coaching? Because I've just got this amazing opportunity to do some coaching in partnership with Black Dog Institute to run a study to study the impact of coaching on the well-being of doctors. I've got 35 senior doctors. I can't coach them all myself. I need someone else to coach with me. And so I did. And I ended up setting up a small business called Capstan Partners, which I run with Rita Holland. And we now provide coaching to the healthcare sector. And luckily, that study was very effective and showed that coaching made a big difference and that we could significantly improve well-being, solution-focused thinking and flourishing for senior doctors through a coaching program. And I have to say, it wasn't at all up to me. We had a number of other coaches come and join us in that program, many doctors who've done coaching skills. And now I'm in this position where that's why I'm coaching two days a week because I'm running this coaching business with Rita. Incredible. Is it coaching specifically for doctors on leadership or is it more broad in general than that? It's really for anything that is a problem that you want to solve. And coaching is a skill set where you can really use the general coaching approach when you're talking to either an individual or a group to help focus on the issue at hand to work out what steps you might take and then commit to action. Mostly what I've done is coaching around leadership development or actually performance coaching for trainees who are doing big interviews or trying to get through exams or career decision-making. So where people are working through, as many of us do, um, where should I go? What should I do? Having an opportunity to hold a space with someone to talk through the different options that you have and why you're going to choose them, I think is a really helpful thing. So they're the three big areas that we mostly coach in. But having said that, it's just a skill set that you can support anybody with depending on what their decision and challenge is at hand. I might be putting you on the spot here a bit, but do you have any particular advice or an exercise that people can run through to try and be better leaders or a way of thinking that could help them be better leaders? Because I think a lot of medical people in creative careers as well as traditional medical pathways find themselves in leadership positions without any formal teaching or really any support on how to be better leaders. Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, I think the first thing that comes to mind for me would actually be a coaching approach, which would be to say, can you think of someone who's a great leader and what is it that they do that makes them a great leader? And then write it all down and reflect on it. And then say, if you were going to give advice to someone about how to be a good leader, what advice would you give them? And then write it all down. Mm-hmm. And then when you think about yourself and the things that you do well as a leader, what are they? Write them all down. And then if you stand back and look at those three areas, you're probably seeing a theme of the kind of traits that are required to be a leader. And then we'd go into a conversation about, well, on a scale of zero to 10, where are you now? 
oh, well, I reckon I'm only about a five out of 10 in this particular aspect, recognising there's lots of different aspects in being a leader. And then it would be about what's the opportunity or what could you do to upskill in that area. So, for example, if somebody was to say, the thing that I find really hard is managing conflict, which actually is probably one of the things that comes up most commonly in coaching. Then we would start zeroing in on that as a development area and then how do you get through that? So where can you go for help? Are there some tools or techniques you can learn? And asking other people or watching other people how they manage that. I think that self-reflection can get you a long way without having to go and do a leadership development course. The other thing I think is the power of a 360 and getting feedback. Again, I don't think you should be getting feedback without having someone you can talk to about it, whether it's a coach or a mentor or something like that. But if you're in a position where you can get some feedback on your own leadership, then that in itself is extremely helpful because that means you can not only see where you need to improve, but see where you're doing really well. And that's what I think is the problem for us as doctors a lot of the time is we only see the glass half empty, not the glass half full. And we forget how much we already know and how much we've learned and how good we are at a whole bunch of stuff. And we just go into that zone of seeing the tiny bit that we want to make better. And then we tell ourselves we're terrible at this because we can only see that small bit. So that's probably a one way of thinking about how to improve leadership skills, but definitely stopping to reflect and looking around for examples of what you think good leaders are and then potentially talking to that person and asking them to be a mentor or using even that as a role model, even if that's just a conscious reflective practice that you do. Because sometimes you get a lot more from seeing those things in action than you do from reading a book or attending a course. I love that. I'm definitely going to try that out myself after this. Good one. What's your favourite thing about everything that you're currently doing? Or is that like picking a favourite child? Yeah, definitely it is. (laughs) It's it's really good. I mean, I think I've already said 10 times, I just love everything. That's my problem. I don't love everything, to be fair, but I'm fortunate that I've got an opportunity to work in a space where a lot of what I do I really like. I think the thing that I really, really like the most is being with people, being in an environment where you can have a conversation that in some way helps the person or the group that you're with come to a different place, a different realisation, a different action, a different thought. Obviously, coaching is that. I think for me, I do a bit of facilitation and consulting work as well. And so, that can be great as well to not actually take the responsibility for solving other people's problems. But sometimes if you just summarise what someone has said and feed it back to them, it gives them that moment of going, oh, you're right. That is most important to me. And then I find myself saying, I didn't say that, you said that. (laughs) But that's the bit that I love the most. And I think that's probably coming back to our earlier conversation. One of the reasons why I've decided to focus the rest of my career on those aspects of my leadership and coaching journey, not to say I don't enjoy my clinical work because I do. And, you know, I really love being with patients. We talked about the drama of being with children in a positive way I mean and I love being around junior doctors and I really enjoy teaching and mentoring but I think my happy place is probably in that coaching space. Incredible. Do you have a clear idea of where to from here with scaling back your clinical workload are you planning on picking up anything else or is there anything else you'd like to achieve with your career? I'm not sure exactly what I'm going to do next. I would like to do some more clinical work. I'd really like to do some telehealth because I think that's the future of work, not because I think it's the second rate thing that we can do in our spare time, but more because that's how I think we should be offering healthcare. We don't need to have that old model of everybody being in the room physically. And I'd 
don't have a skill set in that, I'd like to think I could pick it up and do it, but I haven't done that. So that would be another great way for me to keep moving and learning in the clinical space. Beyond that, I really don't know what I want to do next and I'm very comfortable with waiting to see what happens. I'm very fortunate that I've been able to do that in my career and things have happened. I think the hardest question and the most unreasonable question in the world is where do you want to be in five years' time? Because I don't think really anybody knows. I've asked a lot of people. I've asked a lot of people that when I coach them and anybody who's being honest with me pretty much says, I don't really know. Or I'm not really sure, but I made something up for the interview. <laughs> and and to be fair, some people do. That is such a strength. And I would be really leaning into that as a really great foundation for where you're going to, because that's something most people don't have. And lucky you. <laughs> <laughs> I think we all thought that we knew that at 18 when we chose med school and then maybe no one actually knows. <laughs> oh, we just keep doing what we're good at. And I think that ends up putting you in the right place if you can be in that in the place where you do what you're good at then you get even better at it and then people recognize you as being good at it and then they invite you to do it and then all of a sudden you've designed that skill set that nobody else has and you don't quite know how it happened but it certainly wasn't because you had a five-year plan (laughs) I love that for our final question I want to ask you and you said earlier that this was a really tricky question for you but if you were to do something outside of medicine what would you do I do really love that question because I think a lot about how I need to give back more time to my life and not my work and then what would I do with my life if I wasn't working and I'm at the age where I'm starting to and my friends are starting to think about what are we going to do in our retirement so it's actually a very topical question. The first response I have which is honest is that medicine has opened up so many opportunities for me and I think the definition of working in medicine can be a very flexible one. So probably a lot of the things that I would do for a slightly alternative career if they weren't seeing patients are things that I'm either fortunate enough to already be doing or I might have an opportunity to do more of in the next few years. If I was going to dream big and have a magic wand and literally be able to do whatever job I wanted, I think it probably would be something creative and something in a space that was around potentially performing or storytelling or something to do with music or art. They're all things that when I look back at my childhood, the only thing I can't reconcile, not the only thing, but one of the things I can't reconcile when I look back and try and weave the threads of my life backwards is the things I did as a teenager that I don't do now. And I used to do a lot of music. I used to do a lot of drama. I used to do a lot of creative writing. I used to do a lot of drawing. And I don't do that now. And that's a very big challenge that I put to myself about how I can recreate or reconnect with those aspects of me. And I haven't got the answer to that yet. Mm. If you know anyone with the answer, let me know. (laughs) Sounds like a great retirement project. You don't seem like the sort of person that's going to take too well to retiring and sitting around doing nothing. I'm not going to be painting the house and doing the gardening for 20 years. I can tell you that. Sarah, it's been fantastic to talk to you. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it, Elise. Thanks for listening to the Creative Careers in Medicine podcast, a proud member of the Talking Health Tech podcast network. Visit the Creative Careers in Medicine website in the show notes of this episode for more resources to help you find the courage, confidence and skills to take control of your career and forge your own unique path. 
The Creative Careers in Medicine podcast acknowledges the traditional owners of country throughout Australia and recognises the continuing connection to lands, water and community. We pay our respects to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures and to elders past, present and emerging. 